Welcome back this morning. We are looking at the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there may be one in one of the chairs in front of you. And the section that we're looking at this morning is on page 523 in those gray uh, paperback Bibles under your seat. Of course, if you if you do have a Bible, um, uh, you can turn there. But if you have a, a, a Bible app, it's probably even easier. You're probably already there. Um, but I do remember struggling to find Bible passages uh, as a new believer, and I would always uh, I would always tune in late. I, I seems like I missed the whole first part of every message. Uh, because I was not quick enough to find uh, to find the scripture, so uh, of course you can look at the table of contents, and you're going to locate the the Gospel of John, which is different than First John or Second John or Third John. Um, the John we're looking at is just the regular John with no numbers in front of it, and we're going to look at John chapter eleven. I think I pretty much confused everybody, even myself, now. Uh, but we're going to look at John chapter 11, and, and this is really the beginning of a, a nine-week series that we're starting this morning based on the I Am statements of Jesus. And it's fitting this morning that we're going to start with, uh, in John 11, Jesus' declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. So we're going to find out what does it mean for Jesus to be the resurrection uh, on the day that we celebrate His resurrection. And so that's where we're aiming for. As we celebrate His resurrection, we want to understand His declaration from John chapter 11 that He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. But before we get to that, let's just, um, let's just appreciate what we understand as Resurrection Sunday. New Testament scholar and historian Gary Habermas has collected over 1,400 of the most critical scholarly works about the resurrection of Jesus. All those critical scholarly works that were written between the years 1975 and 2003. And Gary Habermas uh, discovered that virtually all those scholars from the most conservative, believing, orthodox scholars to the most liberal, the ones who would deny miracles, the ones who would deny Jesus uh, as a virgin birth and any of those other miracles, from the most liberal of all, they all agree on several facts surrounding the resurrection. And Alyssa Childers pointed out these four. Jesus was executed by Roman crucifixion. That's number one. Number two, Jesus' brother, James, who was a skeptic, was converted after an encounter that he believed was the risen Jesus. Number three, Paul the persecutor was suddenly converted after testifying to having met a resurrected Jesus. And you'll remember that Paul was not just a skeptic, but he was a persecutor of the church of those who followed Jesus. It was Paul who held the coats of those who would stone Stephen to death, uh, approving of their um, killing Stephen uh, as he um, gave his life for Jesus. Paul would have been the 
part of the persecuting party uh, that was persecuting them. He was converted after having met a resurrected Jesus. And then the fourth fact that scholars agree is that Jesus' closest followers believed that they saw him alive after he was dead, and then they continued for the rest of their lives willing to suffer and willing to die for that testimony. So this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the best explanation of those facts, um, if you were just looking at it from a critical point of view, is that Jesus is absolutely alive, that Jesus was resurrected. But for those of us who know Jesus, we don't have to have or to rely on those things. Not that we um, don't rely on our minds or on critical facts from scholars or things like that, but we understand because we've met Jesus. And this morning, um, it may be difficult for us, try as we may, to fully appreciate the wonder and the amazement and the joy that took place as those women were first on their way to the tomb and as they approached, instead of seeing a Roman guard and a seal and uh, soldiers, they instead saw an open tomb, the stone rolled away. It would be hard for us to fully appreciate that. We may not even fully grasp what it was like for Peter and John to hear that news and for the two of them to take off running and for John to outrun Peter to the grave and to stop at the entrance, but then for Peter to catch up and to burst into that empty tomb. We may not be able to fully put ourselves there. We could never know the amazement that gripped the rest of the disciples for the rest of that day uh, as some traveled to Emmaus on a seven-mile walk with Jesus Himself describing from the days of Moses uh, all the things that were taught about the Christ and how He must learn all the things that He taught and did. We may not even be able to understand the amazement that gripped the other disciples as they experienced Jesus in a locked room. Um, all of those things are so hard for us to wrap our minds around. Um, and even so more for the next 40 days as Jesus appeared to them on a number of occasions. It may be difficult for us to do that. Uh, it may be easier. Um, there's a couple here, Dwayne and Jen, they traveled to Israel. They, they, may, they just got back, what, a few days ago or so. They may be able to picture some of these things in their mind, having sat in the garden tomb and having seen that rolled away stone or having seen the eastern gate leading into Jerusalem that faces the Mount of Olives that goes up a couple of miles, that, that uh, a couple of miles away would find the village of Bethany that was on the road to Jericho. It's so hard for us to imagine Imagine all of these things, but even though it may be difficult for us to put ourselves there, it's not hard at all for us to appreciate the resurrection. We don't, we don't struggle to appreciate the fact that Jesus is alive and that He has made Himself known to us. Uh, I remember when I went to Israel uh, maybe seven or so years ago, I, I sat on one evening um, on the, the Lake Gennesaret, or what we call the Sea of Galilee. It's not really a sea. If you can picture Lake Nakamixon, you have a better idea of what Lake Gennesaret is like. We would never call Nakamixon a sea, but uh, it was something like Peace Valley Park or something like Lake Nakamixon, smaller in scale than you imagine, long and kind of skinny. If you're sitting on one side, uh, you can hear people on boats. Uh, you can hear people even on the other side uh, of one of those cities there. 
but I remember sitting um, one evening. We first arrived there. It was warm evening. There was a full moon. I could hear a party boat in the distance, and I just got into uh, the the sea there, the lake. And and as the the water, the waves were coming over me, and and just swimming a little bit. Um, first of all, I was glad there were no sharks in there and uh, another dangerous wildlife. Uh, but then after I kind of got over that, um, you know, adapting to my environment, uh, I began to think how grateful I was that I didn't have to travel to Israel and I didn't have to sit on the shores of this sea that Jesus had traveled on in order for me to know him. As a 17-year-old former atheist uh, with an immoral lifestyle that did not believe in God or Jesus or the Bible, uh, as a person far away from Israel in a small town in Oklahoma, I cried out to God at, uh, at some of the lowest points of my life and asked if He was real, if He would make Himself known to me. Uh, and and uh, in this sort of um, turmoil within my own life, and having cried out to him, um, I had a stranger come to my door uh, the next day after I prayed that prayer. And he knocked on my door and said, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? He said, I'm just doing a survey in your neighborhood and, and I would like to ask you this question. He began to ask me a couple of other things. I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about. And then when he asked me if I were to die, if I'd go to heaven, I said, I don't know. But I want to know. I've been thinking about death lately. And so I, I want to know. And, and so right then and there, he shared with me the information about Jesus Christ and the life he lived. Uh, and the sinless life that he lived, and him becoming a sacrifice on my behalf for my sins, taking my punishment for me on the cross. And so right there, February 20th, 1991, I think around 8.30 p.m. at 1520 Pecan Street in, in Norman, Oklahoma. Every time I'm there, I drive right by it. I have numerous pictures on my phone. I'm sure the people who live there don't appreciate that at all, that every time I drive by, there's guys stalking. But, but that for me is a place of remembrance of the place where I met Jesus and Jesus made Himself known to me in a way that was more than just religious ritual. I experienced the living Jesus, so much so that my life changed um, pretty uh, dramatically over the next two or three years. And then it has put me on this trajectory where here, 31 years later, I still tell that story. And I, I still tell stories of other times that I have encountered Jesus. And so even though we can't be there, we can't put ourselves in Jerusalem, and we can't picture the landscape as it was at that time, and we can't experience the emotions that the disciples experienced, and we can't experience the emotions that the women experienced when they went into that place, you and I, it's not hard for us, if you've met Jesus, for you to appreciate the resurrection. Jesus is not dead he is alive, and to those of you who believe in Him, you do not need me to tell you that. We can glorify Him and worship Him because He met us where we were in life. At our greatest point of need, God sent Jesus to earth to bear the sin penalty for us. And then at the moment we cried out to Him and asked Him, Romans 10 says that those who uh, cry out to Him and believe are saved. Jesus is alive and active today. 
Uh, And because he lives, my life is a testimony uh, that he lives and Lord willing will continue to be. So let's pray this morning and and we're going to understand what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection even as he was resurrected. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that uh, it tells us and affirms for us things that many of us already know because of the witness of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. As we think about new life, as we think about resurrection, as we think about hope, and as we think about how many of us walked in sin and darkness and death, that once we met Christ, there was a new light and a new life available to us. It's my prayer today that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that as we listen to your word, that we would approach it as though we were starving and that your word was the food uh, that we need. I pray that in today's message, I pray that you would give those the ability to hear and to believe, and that by believing that they may have life. Your word says that this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And in John, when he wrote this, recorded for us in 1 John 5, 11-13, he said, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Lord Jesus, your word also tells us that you have put eternity into the hearts of all of us. There is an understanding fundamental to humanity that we have that there's more to this life than just existing for this period of time. Our life is like a mist, a vapor, a smoke, here today and gone tomorrow. So may, us, may we all live for that which matters the most, that which will matter for eternity. That is, that we may live by faith, that our lives may honor you and bring glory to you. Give those who don't yet know you, give them ears to hear, that they may believe, and that by believing, they may have life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at John chapter 11, and in John chapter 11, it's a very long chapter. We're going to read a good bit of it, but we're really going to tell a lot of the story of it, but it's going to culminate in verses 17 through 27, so let's just jump right to that point here together. John chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So here we have this wonderful testimony from Martha that she acknowledges she's intellectually convinced and has believed that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus seems to put his finger somewhere where she's not quite comfortable. Do you believe that he will rise again? And maybe in a moment of hesitation, she says, yes, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Maybe she doesn't want to give in to a false hope that Jesus is about to do what Jesus is about to do. So she says, I believe that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, to which Jesus replies to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She answers again in a way that doesn't quite stand on a firm conviction that Jesus is the resurrection and life. She is, of course, on this side, on the other side of the cross, not on this side of the cross. From our vantage point, we know what happens. Uh, Jesus is in Bethany within a week of Holy Week at this particular time, uh, maybe just a few weeks out from it. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, and they, they um, shout Hosanna with the palm branches and, and they welcome him. And he, he is then uh, goes through the week and teaches and preaches all around Jerusalem. And then, of course, on Thursday has the Last Supper with his disciples and then betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he uh, is arrested and goes on to three uh, secular trials uh, and, and as well as a religious trial, and then of course is crucified on Friday. It would have made sense for Jesus to tell Martha, maybe it would have been easier for Martha to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life had she experienced this after his resurrection. But he's putting her in a position where she has, to, she has to trust. She has to believe something that she doesn't quite know how to believe. Of course, this, uh, the last miracle, the last sign that Jesus did, um, the, the last sign that Jesus does uh, to point to him being the Son of God. I don't know if you know this. Um, I, I learned a lot of this this week. But in John chapter 20, if you just flip over there real quick. In John chapter 20, at the end of John chapter 20, in verse 30, John the apostle who Jesus... Um, became a disciple of Jesus when he was a teenager. 
likely uh, when Jesus was crucified, who's likely no more than 20 or younger, um, is now writing this traditionally understood to be on the island of Patmos in 90. So this is about 60 years later. So this is John writing as an 80-year-old man, perhaps. John has all these years of uh, Paul and the missionaries and the European expansion of Christianity. He has all these years to reflect on and, and then to, uh, um, to put together this gospel. And in verse 30 of John chapter 20, he tells us the reason why he did this. The purpose of his gospel is this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So I want you to notice three things about that purpose. One, he says that there are signs that John writes. Seven of them. Uh, You can see the seven signs in John Uh, We won't go through these in our I am statements, but seven signs, Jesus transforming water into wine. That's in John chapter 2. Another sign, Jesus healing the official's son by a long distance miracle in John chapter 4. In John chapter 5, Jesus walks in to Jerusalem and heals an invalid who had been that way for 38 years. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds a miraculous crowd of 5,000 and they gather up 12 baskets with fragments that were left over from those five barley loaves. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. In John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. And then this, the final sign, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The purpose of John's signs, John said in John 20, verse 29 there, that we just read, Jesus did many other signs, many signs. But out of those, these signs I've chosen. There's a selection of these signs. And Jesus cho- or John chose these signs for a purpose. Look back at verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now connect that with Martha. Connect that with Peter. When Jesus came about to go to the mountain of transfiguration, Peter said, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, now, okay, now, that's right. God revealed that to you. Now, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified. What does Peter say? Uh-uh. No, you're not going to die. You're not going to be crucified. And, and so he, he does not want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Peter had this partial understanding of Jesus as the Christ, but not a full understanding. Martha has a partial understanding of Christ at this point. You understand? I believe that you're the Christ. I believe that you're the Son of God who's coming into the world. But as such, she still does not quite grasp this resurrection, this death, crucifixion part of it. 
G. Campbell Morgan writes this, when we hear this declaration of John's purpose, answering the question, why did he write? He says, these are written that you may believe. And he says, there are two uses of this verb in this passage, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may then have life in his name. Listen close. It's the double use of this verb. We have revealed to us two sides of faith that actually brings men and women into life. The first, quite patently, is intellectual conviction. That you may believe, that is, that you may be convinced intellectually that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the sort of faith that Martha was granted. I believe that you are the Son of God. Jesus says, well, I asked. Uh, That's good, and I appreciate that. Even to Peter, he said that's good. But then when he reveals the end, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross and the, the resurrection from the dead, Peter wasn't on board for that. Martha doesn't quite know what to do with this resurrection aspect. So when John writes and he says, the purpose for me writing these signs is so that you may believe. And then the second form of the verb that by believing you may have life, it's the fullness of saving faith. This is what Morgan continues. This saving faith implies more than just intellectual conviction. It requires more than just saying, I think Jesus is the Christ. It requires a transference of yielded trust. Morgan calls it volitional surrender to the thing of which your mind is convinced. He says, as a matter of fact, we never really believe anything until we fully surrender ourselves to it. It is possible to say every Sunday, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Do we? Saying this in the sanctuary does not prove it. Your life and my life through the week proves the reality of the faith affirmed or disproved it. Intellectual conviction is not saving faith, but apart from it, there can be no saving faith. We must have the facts and we must grasp them intellectually and yield to them. So Morgan makes this point, G. Campbell Morgan makes this point, that believing intellectually is altogether different than yielding your life in saving faith. This is what Jesus was getting at with Martha. I know, you're gonna, I know He's going to rise again on the last day, and I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world, but that's not what Jesus asked her. He asked her, to respond to his proclamation that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus describing this pathway toward death. Now, no one in their right mind says, I'm on board for that pathway, right? No one in their right mind, if, if a car pulled up in front of your house, and your friends said, we are going on a drive and we're, and we're not coming back. It's going to be a road to death. I don't know what that looks like. But, but, but no one in their right mind would say, I'm coming along with you. But Jesus invites us into this life of death that we may live. 
He says that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And he, he tests her faith. Let's go back to John 11. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they also followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. The word weep there is a word uh, for wailing. And, and in Middle Eastern funerals, especially in Israel, you would hire out professional wailers. It was, uh, it was the role of this particular professional group of people to come and help facilitate grief and emotional expression. And so they would come and they would wail and they would wail loudly, moaning and groaning. Not necessarily a show of tears, but just a loud expression of wailing. By this time, Mary had possibly cried her tears out at this point four days later. Uh, the, the, the Jews who follow her, there's a separate word they use. They, they went and followed her, supposing she's going to the tomb to weep there, to wail and to moan there. That's the word used there. In verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Now, interestingly, uh, this particular Mary in Luke 10 is also the one who sat where? In the home of Martha and Mary while Martha was in the kitchen getting things ready. What was Mary doing? She was at the feet of Jesus. She finds herself in this same position whether things were good when her brother was alive and Jesus was eating at her house and everything was well. She found herself at the feet of Jesus. Now in the moment, the darkest moment of her life, possibly the death of her brother groaning, she finds herself at the feet of Jesus. When Jesus saw her wailing and moaning, and the Jews who had also come with her also wailing and moaning, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Coincidentally, this is the only time ever recorded that Jesus asks for information. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now this use of the word wept it's a different Greek word altogether, and it means an overwhelming flow of emotion and tears streaming down the face sort of emotion. Jesus has this first outward sign of emotion. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That question is important. Couldn't he have also saved him? Skip back to John 11, um, verse 1. Jesus could have saved him. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, and, and you know the story. Lazarus um, is sick, and, um, and this is Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Um, that's recorded in John 12. So verse 3, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. One day away, Jesus is teaching and preaching in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Coincidentally, Bethany 
two miles east of Jerusalem, was about a day's journey. So Jesus is, uh, um, if you trace the, um, I'll, I'll do it up here, this is the, dead, uh, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows into it, and then from it down into the Dead Sea at the bottom. Um, travelers from all over Galilee and all the northern parts of Israel would come sideways to that river valley, travel down that river valley. Then they would cross the Jordan and get into Jericho. And then from Jericho, they would travel um, upward. It's a mountainous area. They would travel upward up into Jerusalem. So Jesus is about a day away and a couple thousand feet down. Uh, The guy coming down from Jerusalem into Jericho, across the Jordan, into Bethany, by the time he gets there with this news, Lazarus is already dead. And the Jews didn't practice any kind of embalming like the Egyptians did, so they would have uh, wrapped him up uh, and put him in the tomb immediately. Uh, Then he would have been in the tomb for a year until his body decomposed, and then a year later they come back, they get the bones, they stick them in an ossuary, a box. By this time, though, when Jesus hears the news, it's likely that Lazarus is already dead and already in the tomb. Verse 4 of John 11, Jesus, when he heard it, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There is a particular type of sickness that is for the glory of God. When the man is born blind and the, Jew is, the disciples ask Jesus, why was this man born blind? What did Jesus say? It's for the glory of God that he was born blind. I'm going to heal him and it's for the glory of God. There was sickness in the land that was for the glory of God. Jesus allows Lazarus to die, Lazarus to die for the glory of God and so that the Son of God may receive glory. This is a sign pointing to Jesus' messiahship. It's not a sickness that leads to death. It's for the glory of God. Coincidentally, whenever I pray for someone who is sick, when you say, hey, can you pray for so-and-so? They're not doing well. They're sick and they're not going to make it. I'll say, may their, may their sickness be for the glory of God. God, would you allow this sickness to be for the glory of God? I did a funeral for a woman named Cindy who came to our church uh, seven years ago or so when I preached this same passage uh, in front of her. And when she walked in, she had cancer. And when she walked in, I had the title of this sermon called Death, Disease, and Resurrection. She looked at Ariel and said, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not staying here. She, she hadn't been to church in a while, and this was not normal for her. Uh, but she did not want to come and hear this. But she uh, gripped Ariel's arm, I guess, and, and sat through it. But she heard about this. And, and, and as she began to explore over the next year or two, Um, she came to faith in Christ. And as a process of her coming to faith in Christ, uh, I was able to do her funeral. And and as I read through her own paper Bible that we had given her, like these pew ones that you have under the chair here, I saw all these passages that she had underlined and made notes of. And I have a video of her singing and leading worship. Her sickness was for the glory of God. At her funeral, a number of people came up to me afterward. There was probably 500 people there. And, and the Spirit of God moved through that because uh, the way she came to faith in Christ, through the circumstances uh, of her life, gave glory to God, though she died. But listen, S- Cindy's not dead right now. She's as alive as she ever was, more alive than she ever was. 
So Jesus is saying, this sickness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Uh, I've preached this passage 11 or 12 times. One time I preached it, the youth group band just sang a song, Oh my God, you will not delay my ransom strength. You're always going to come right when I call you. And then I, I stood up and I read this verse, that when Jesus heard, he loved them. He, when he heard, he delayed. He stayed longer in the place where he was. It was an awkward moment, um, but a, a, a good correctable moment that what we sing matters and the lyrics uh, should line up with Scripture. Jesus loved them, so he delayed. Why would Jesus lead them and allow them to experience grief and pain and sorrow and weeping? And at the same time, Jesus, knowing the glory that was going to take place as a result of this miracle, was allowing a gathering of people. All these Jews are coming from Jerusalem. See, Bethany means house of the poor, and and it's two miles outside of Jerusalem. As people were coming out from Jericho, it's likely that the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was a place where um, travelers would stop, and many people knew them. And, And so along the way, Lazarus dying, Jesus is gathering a larger and larger crowd to witness this miracle. And skip down to verse... 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Verse 48, they go, some go to the Pharisees and the chief priests and the council, and they, they said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The risk was that people would believe in Jesus. And people were believing in Jesus. And so Jesus allowed Lazarus to go into the tomb and to die in order for him to do this miracle. Let's get to the miracle part. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. All of this foreshadowing for us what Jesus would do uh, when he was crucified. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been there dead four days. Interesting four days. This isn't the first time Jesus raised somebody from the dead, by the way. The, the, the Jairus' little daughter, um, she was just, uh, just a few moments dead, uh, the, uh, the, the son of, uh, uh, from Nain carrying out to a funeral, Jesus stopped and, and raised him as well from the dead. There's a Jewish literature that indicates that they thought the spirit of a person would hover for a couple of days. Not biblical, just Jewish literature that indicates that they believed that the spirit of a person would hang around and that once that body was decaying, and there, they, they would then make their departure. That was just sort of a myth. But four days dead dispels that for every single person. That's why Martha says uh, he's been dead for four days, and not only is his spirit gone, but it's going to be smelly in there. So Jesus said to her, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now she already said she believed, right? 
This is that two parts of the faith that we're talking about. Jesus asked her for more of a leap of faith, a surrender, a yielded to what he's going to do. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe. Now listen, there's the key word again. Everywhere in the Gospel of John, if you were to read my Gospel of John, you'll see the word believe squared in um, pink ink. And it, everywhere it's in there, it's 93 times, uh, based on my count, every form of the word believe that helps make John 20, 30 and 31 make sense. He's written so that you may believe. He wrote these signs so that you believe. He, he wrote all these things down so that you would believe. And so his goal from beginning to end is so that you would believe. And you will find this word believe used all over the place in the Gospel of John. So he challenges Martha. I, and he prays to the Lord. I said this so that those around me may believe that you sent me. And when he had said those things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Interestingly, all throughout this story, Jesus does what only Jesus can do. And he asks people to do what only people can do. Now, Jesus doesn't go over there and unwrap him. Jesus doesn't roll away the stone. Jesus doesn't find his way over to the tomb. Jesus asks for directions. Jesus is, everybody else is doing for Jesus as a way of participating in the miracle that was just accomplished. And the result, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, these are the people that make up the crowd that yells Hosanna. These are the people that make up the, the people who um, appear to him more than 500 at a time uh, after his ascension, at, uh, after Pentecost. These are people who are gathered around the upper room. This is the Jerusalem church, potentially, of people who were um, living in this particular area. This is where they all came from. Lazarus' testimony was huge so that they may have faith. What does it mean for you this morning? What does it mean for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life? It means that death is not the final word. Death is not the final word. If you see death as an unavoidable wall that you're going to hit, death is the great enemy for humanity. But in Christ, that wall is shattered and we don't have to fear death. If you're in Christ, death is not the final word. It used to be. It used to be the final word. People will do anything they can to get out of death. Um, but those of us who are in Christ, Paul said, for me to live is gain and to die is Christ. I mean, it's, it's no big deal for me to die. It's just a passing through. I've recently been rereading the, uh, the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And when a um, little Christian gets to the edge of the celestial city, he crosses the river. Uh, and and he's, he's crossing this river of death and it is for him pleasant as the angel carries him across, escorting him straight in. And that's, that's the picture. If Jesus conquered death and rose again, and if Jesus is the resurrection, he promises that we will rise again. And so what does it mean for you? If you're a Christ follower, you have no need to fear death any longer. It's a wall that's broken. It's something that does not hold a place of fear for us any longer. Secondly, what does this mean for us? Jesus promises there's a resurrection and there will be a resurrection for all people. 
all people will be resurrected. Uh, in Revelation 19 and 20, we read that there is a resurrection uh, and all the people um, who have died from all the ages will come and will stand before God at a point of what's called Judgment Day. Uh, in Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then I saw all the dead, great and small, all of them standing before the throne and all the books were opened. And then a book was opened called the book of life. And all the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up all the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up all the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into a lake of fire, the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In case it wasn't clear, he said, the dead from everywhere. Every single soul who has ever lived will experience resurrection to judgment. Resurrection to judgment. A Christ follower doesn't have to fear death in this life, but a Christ follower doesn't have to fear judgment day either. Because what Jesus accomplished at the cross was enduring the punishment that we should have endured that, we will, that will come about on Judgment Day. So there will be a resurrection for all people. Some will be resurrected to life. Some will be resurrected to eternal judgment. But that's not it. For Lazarus, there was something interesting here. Lazarus had a bit of a second chance, if you think about it. Um, tradition says that he went on to live for another 30 years or so of life. Isn't that interesting? What would you have done if you were Lazarus? It doesn't say anything about where he went or what. He, did you see a white light or did you, you know, it doesn't say anything about any of that stuff. No one asked him. The fact was he came back and, and, and if he lived 30 years, we don't know what the, if tradition is right or not, but tradition says if you live for 30 years, there's no doubt that he had an interesting life after that. Maybe the life he lived before that death was marked, but certainly life after that point was different. It was a resurrection life. Let me give you some interesting thoughts about the life that Jesus promises. He says, I am life. He doesn't dwell when he says, I am the resurrection. He also says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he dwells on that point of being the life. As he says in 11.25, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He shall live Everyone who believes in me, though he dies, shall he live. This sort of resurrection life is more than just existence. More than just existence. Have you ever been in a rut? A season of your life where you just wake up and you go through the routine? The Groundhog Day, the Bill Murray movie where every day is exactly the same. Merely existing. Breathing in. Breathing out. Heart pumping. Eating. Drinking. Sleeping. No one ever describes that existence as life. But Jesus promises life. Life includes purpose. Having a reason to get up that's bigger than yourself. Life includes serving someone greater than yourself. 
Life involves trust and provision and surprise and wonder and trials and difficulty and mystery. But I think uh, Lazarus's second half, however long it was, it's probably filled with some interesting stories. But probably more so some interesting conversations as he was able to point to people. You see, Lazarus died again. Um, the widow whose son died in Nain, Jairus' daughter, they all died again. The purpose wasn't for them to be raised to live more years. The purpose was for them to live an eternal life, a full life, a life that they can look back on from eternity and say it had purpose and it had meaning, had impact, and people's lives were changed. Jesus promises more than just existence. He promises life. Finally, we see the purpose here again that you may believe. That's John's purpose. We're going to go through the seven um, I am statements over the next uh, few weeks, month or so. Uh, we'll certainly weave into that some of the, the other seven signs that point to this. But don't lose sight of the fact that it is for us to believe. So maybe you're here this morning and you have never believed. Maybe this is the first time to church. Maybe this is the first time to church in a long time. Maybe you've been in church or even in this church for years and you've still not believed. A few weeks ago, I, I got on an airplane to go see my oldest daughter in, in Oklahoma. And, and uh, you know, as I looked at the plane, I, I could have said, I think that plane is going to fly me to Oklahoma City. I think it's going to get me there, no problem. Intellectually, I could have acknowledged that plane was going to get me there. But that's, that's not faith. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is walking down that jetway or whatever it's called and, and trying, you know, I always wonder if I step over that crack, will I, can I fit in that crack? Um, some people touch the outside of the plane before they get on. But, but that's a step of faith when you transfer your trust from the jetway onto that plane and it lifts off up into the air when all of your weight and all of your dependence is in that plane. Many people approach Jesus intellectually. I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the Son of God. But it's far from living a yielded and surrendered life. That's why John was written, so that you may believe, not just intellectually, but that you may transfer trust and yielded surrender to Christ. Father, my prayer today is that you would give faith, that you would open the eyes of faith to one who is here this morning that has never really believed. Sure, maybe they've acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God, but, but that's a far cry from believing in the way that John indicates that by believing that they would have life. It's our prayer today, not just today, but every Sunday, that those who would hear would believe. Your word says that faith comes by hearing and, uh, and hearing by the messenger who is sent. And so we just acknowledge that you um, have sent this word for this purpose today, that those who would hear would believe. We pray that it would be so, that new life would begin. No matter the circumstances, no matter the past, no matter the sins that someone might say, there's no way God could love me and save me because of all the sins that I've committed. We thank you that even for a thief on the cross who uh, rightly deserved death and even death on a cross, even for him, Jesus, you extended grace and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's no one who's too far gone, no one whose sin has carried them too far away from your saving grace. 
It's our prayer today that, that you would open the eyes of faith for some, allowing them to trust in you completely and fully in more than just an intellectual way, but that their life may be transformed by the gospel of grace. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.